I bid you welcome again. Please turn with me in your Bibles to the Gospel of Luke. This morning, as I said earlier, we'll be taking a break from our series in the book of Ephesians. For the next four Sundays, we will look at four songs that ring out in the first two chapters of Luke. We'll begin with the song of Zechariah. Now, it is true that the first song that comes up in the narrative is actually Mary's song, which we'll get to next Sunday. I've chosen to start with Zechariah's song and then proceed to Mary's uh, second. So if you will turn in your Bibles to the second chapter of Luke, we'll begin at verse 57. The song is a bit later than that, but that starts on page 1017, 1017 of the Bibles in your pews. And so there we read. Now the time came for Elizabeth to give birth. She bore a son. Her neighbors and relatives heard that the Lord had shown a great mercy to her, and they rejoiced with her. And on the eighth day, they came to circumcise the child, and they would have called him Zechariah after his father. But his mother answered, No, he shall be called John. They said to her, None of your relatives is called by that name. They made signs to his father, inquiring what he wanted him to be called. He asked for a writing tablet and wrote, His name is John. And they all wondered. Immediately his, that is Zechariah's, mouth was opened, his tongue loosed, and he spoke, blessing God. Fear came on all their neighbors, and all these things were talked about through all the hill country of Judea. And all who heard them laid them up in their hearts, saying, what then will this child be? For the hand of the Lord was with him. His father Zechariah was filled with the Holy Spirit and prophesied, saying, Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for He has visited and redeemed His people, and has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of His servant David, as He spoke by the mouth of His holy prophets from of old, that we should be saved from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us, to show mercy promised to our fathers and to remember His holy covenant, the oath He swore to our father Abraham, to grant us that we, being delivered from the hand of our enemies, might serve Him without fear in holiness and righteousness before Him all our days. And you, child, so this is Zechariah speaking to his own son, you, child, will be called the prophet of the Most High, for you will go before the Lord to prepare His ways, to give knowledge of salvation to His people and the forgiveness of their sins, because of the tender mercy of our God, whereby the sunrise shall visit us from on high to give light to those who sit in darkness and the shadow of death, to guide our feet into the way of peace. The child grew and become, became strong in spirit, and he was in the wilderness until the day of his public appearance to Israel. This is the word of the Lord, and again we say, thanks be to God. And so, before we, before we look at Zechariah's song, we have this lead-up, which is pretty fantastic. Elizabeth, Mary's sister, who was old and had forever been unable to have children, was now celebrating the birth of her son and everyone was thrilled. And so on the eighth day, the baby born needed to be given the sign of the covenant that God made with Abraham. This was, as it were, the baby's big day. Like baptism, circumcision was the sacrament that marked a person's entrance into the covenant community. And everyone showed up to welcome the kid into the covenant family. And so this was the time for naming. According to custom, a firstborn son was nearly always given the name of his father. But Elizabeth surprised everyone by calling him John. Elizabeth knew that that was the name the angel had earlier given to Zechariah. Immediately, her family and friends start to protest. None of your relatives are called John. 
And you know, this happens sometimes. Parents give their kid a weird name. And some people just can't resist, you know, offering alternative suggestions. John was a common enough name, but everyone was expecting they would, you know, call him Junior, as it were. John's not even a family name after all. So they got, they got the boy's father, Zechariah. Maybe he'll listen to reason. And because Zechariah had balked at God's promise when God told him that he would have a son, his encounter with the angel had left him unable to speak and apparently unable to hear as well. Verse 62 says they were making signs to him, which you would not have had to do if he could hear you okay. So he was unable to speak and unable to hear. Apparently the, this, the, the, the sign making that then proceeded, you almost imagine a sort of game of charades of them trying to clarify what he wants. And Zechariah gets a writing tablet and writes down, his name is John. Right? Not will be John, is John. Right? You think, I mean, the guys learn to trust what the angel has said. And so he's saying his name's always been John. And right after that, Zechariah is suddenly able to speak again. Word spreads throughout the land of this miracle. And his song tells us that he understands that his son's job, John, uh, John the Baptist, his job is going to be a forerunner, preparing the way. Which means, the substance of the song means salvation is on its way. Salvation is coming. Because God keeps His promises. That's the whole point of the song. What's interesting is that we read Zechariah is filled with the Holy Spirit, right? I hope you caught that. And then he starts speaking this prophecy. What should jump out to you, what is, what is really interesting, is that every single line of the song is a quotation of the Old Testament or some sort of allusion or echo to an Old Testament passage. When Zechariah is filled with the Holy Spirit, he starts talking Bible, right? And this song is dense and glorious, but there are at least three things I want to highlight for you this morning as we go through it together. Salvation is on its way, the Messiah is coming, and this means three things at least. One, He's coming to keep His promises. Two, He's coming to save us and change us. And then three, He's coming to bring light to darkness. And so we begin in verse 68. He's coming to keep His promises. The song begins with a blessing, right? Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for He's visited and redeemed His people. Now, when God blesses us, it's something we receive. We are, we are getting receiving from God. When we bless God, if this helps you, that's just another word for praise, so praise be to the Lord of Israel. Zechariah begins by praising God and identifying salvation for what it is. It's Emmanuel, right? Salvation is when God comes to us, not when we work our way to God. Visitation was a common way of expressing God's rescue. The first time Moses and Aaron preached God's rescue plan to the, uh, to the children of Israel in Egypt, before the plagues, before discouragement, before Pharaoh's making us work twice as hard, all that, with the first time they hear, God is coming to rescue you, visitation language is what's used when they rejoice. They, the, the, uh, the text in Exodus 4 says they bow their head and worship because God had visited His people. When Naomi is suffering in a faraway country under poverty and famine, she hears that God has visited His people. So she returns to her homeland. 
Zechariah says the Lord has visited and redeemed, rescued, brought out of slavery, His people. He also says that God has raised up a horn of salvation. Look at verse 69 and 70. He, ha- <coughs> Excuse me. he has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of His servant David as He spoke by the mouth of His holy prophets from of old. That's language from Psalm 148. A horn was a symbol of an animal's power. That shouldn't surprise you, right? Animals that have horns, right? That is, as we say, the business end of the animal and you want to stay away from it. So a horn of salvation, the idea is this is where the power is. This is even where the danger is. It's where the action happens. It's where the warfare happens. It would be like saying the Lord has risen up a blade of salvation. It's a term of kingly might. And in the Scriptures, it refers to kingly power and authority. So in Revelation, the beast has seven horns. Right? That's an indication of power and authority over seven kingdoms. But the heartbeat of the first few verses of the song is that God has kept His promises. Specifically, His promises to David. His promises to Abraham. His, the word holy covenant is used, right? These are the promises God has kept. But we know the song is not actually about Zechariah. The song's not actually mostly about John, his son, but about the one that John is going to talk about. This is about a son of David, right? That's said in the text, again. That they're looking forward to David's kingdom. John, after all, he's the son of a priest, which makes him a descendant of Levi. The song is all about how John will prepare the way for a son of David, who will bring, glory, uh, bring to glorious light all of the promises given to Abraham. Look at verse 71. Here's the, here's the reason why God's doing this, that we should be saved from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us, to show the mercy promised to our fathers, to remember His holy covenant, the oath that He swore to our father Abraham. Zechariah sings a song about how God doesn't lie, how God always keeps His promises. That's the first chunk of this song, is all the stuff God talked about, think David, think Abraham, He's keeping those promises. Okay? And I think part of the reason for that, the reason why God keeps His promises is a theme that shows up here and throughout the Psalms, is that God knows we forget. One of Satan's main goals, by the way, is to convince you that God's promises to you aren't really being kept or aren't really strong enough to hold up through the storm that you are presently confronting. I'm actually really excited to sing this song with you after the sermon today because some of the most important notes in all of our theology ring out in this song. God is real. God is not far from us. He's drawn near to us. He keeps all His promises. He's true to His covenant. He rescues His people. This is a song of salvation from beginning to end. And so... And so God keeps His promises. That was the first thing I told you. The second thing is that the song focuses on how uh, the Messiah is coming to save us and to change us. To save us, but not to leave us as we are, rather to change us. So if God keeps His promises, point one, then that makes us ask, which ones? Like Which promises specifically or most importantly is He keeping? Well, there are two two, two promises that really ring out in the song. Deliverance from enemies... That gets mentioned twice, by the way. And the promise that we will 
serve God without fear in holiness and righteousness. Okay? So, so deliverance from enemies and serving God without fear uh, in, in holiness and righteousness. Look at verse 74. That we being delivered from the hand of our enemies, that's the first one, might serve Him without fear and holiness and righteousness before Him all our days. That's the second one. So He's coming to save us from our enemies. Again, that's the second time enemies get mentioned in the song. Okay. I'm going to go out on a limb here interpretively and say that means we've got enemies. Sometimes we forget that Jesus told us that the Christian life includes a call to love our enemies, not to condition ourselves to think that we don't have any. Starting back in Psalm 2, God promises that all His enemies, including rulers and authorities, would be under His judgment someday. Psalm 110, that all His enemies will be put under His feet. Psalm 2 talks about the wicked nations, how they plan and scheme and work up clever ways to resist God. And God is meanwhile in heaven doing what? He's laughing. He thinks it's hilarious. Throughout history, the deliverance of God's people and the destruction of God's enemies have always gone hand in hand. It's a theme that runs throughout the entire Bible. Sometimes, God destroys His enemies by crushing them and totally dissolving their plans. Sometimes, He does it by converting them and turning them into sons. Our shorter catechism puts it well in the answer to question 26. Listen to this. How does Christ execute the office of a king? Christ executes the office of a king... Listen to the ways. In subduing us to Himself, in ruling and defending us, and in restraining and conquering all His and our enemies. Now at this point, some might say, yes, but enemy talk, when we talk about enemies, is not so much human enemies or say political enemies or heretics or false teachers. We're talking about spiritual forces and demons and Satan and the, Satan and the like. And that's True. The victory of Jesus over His enemies is so much more, so much bigger than human enemies. Those opposed to the things of God, the ways of God, the kingdom of God. It's also demons and Satan. Indeed, the last enemy to be defeated, we're told, will be death itself. It is more than human enemies, but it is certainly not less than that. One of the most interesting Old Testament feasts is the Feast of Purim, where the story of Esther is recalled and where the people give thanks for God's deliverance from the wicked plans of Haman. And there's even this really great sort of retelling of the, of the Esther story where the children are in, instructed that every time Haman's name is mentioned, they go, boo, right? It's great. Part of the whole purpose of the feast is to remind them and even to ask to provoke the question, who are the Hamans today from whom our God will deliver us? Well, that's an interesting question. You see, if we don't consider the reality of spiritual enemies, we're being materialistic fools. We must take seriously the temptations and work of the devil. We must take seriously spiritual warfare and that there's so much more going on than meets the eye in the fight against temptation and sin. I'm currently reading through the screw tape letters again, and if you've never read it, it is fictional, it is not inspired, but it sure is helpful in these things. On the other hand, if we don't consider the reality of, of 
enfleshed enemies, we won't be able to love them very well, eh? We won't actually be fighting spiritual warfare either, though. I remember one time hearing a preacher say, I'll pick fights with evil and darkness, but I will not pick fights with men. That sounds very spiritual until you realize we don't have the comfort of fighting disembodied evil out there somewhere in the ethereal realms. Satan shows up in the Gospels for one chapter. And then you have a few, yeah, a few uh, demonic possessions. But you know, Satan does the rest of his work pretty effectively through the Gospels, through wicked men. And we love our enemies by praying they would be saved, yes. By praying God would rescue them out of their evil as He has done for us. How could we not? And to use the words of the psalmist, we also pray that their evil would come back on them. So that they and all who see them would be reminded that they live in a world ruled by a just God. We pray with the psalmist. Maybe you've heard this expression. It's in the Psalms that that God would break the teeth of the wicked. That's not simply just like a cruel dental procedure. That is is saying, Lord, render them fangless. Defang them. Toothless so that their evil has no bite. That their wickedness doesn't hurt anyone. Part of loving your family and your neighbors is indeed praying that God would protect them from such. But what is clear in Zechariah's song is that the Messiah is coming to rule and save His people from their enemies. And He's coming so that we might serve Him. You saw it in verse 75. If you could put verse 75 back up. So that we could serve Him in holiness and righteousness before Him all our days. Now, the Messiah is coming to bring holiness and righteousness for His people so that we may serve Him without fear. We have spoken before of the importance of fearing the Lord, which is a fear that is the fruit of reverence. It is emotions and actions consistent with the reality that you are dealing with the God of life and death, the Almighty Ruler of the universe. But God does not desire that His people live under a servile fear that causes them to flee and try to hide from Him like our father Adam did. Right In the garden, our father Adam was afraid of the Lord, but it was not the fear of the Lord to which we are called. Our God does not desire that we would have the fear of slaves who hide from their unjust masters. Indeed, He has come to us as a Redeemer, the One who sets us free. But what does it mean to be free? I mean, there's a, I don't know what to call it, a, a movement, a spirit of the age, a way of talking today. Uh, some, some call it uh, religious deconstructionism, which is usually a fancy way of, of saying someone has decided to be God's judge because His people are sinners and His words are hard. And a lot of times the way a, a, a story like that gets presented is, I was enslaved to all like the commands of Christianity, but I finally found freedom when I learned to dismiss the ones that I felt were too restrictive. We've witnessed a, a growth of this kind of freedom. I put that in like scare quotes. Freedom from the commands of God. While if the numbers are to be believed, we've never seen so many people who are slaves to anxiety, depression, 
fear, fear of communication, fear of the future, and even suicide. Those numbers have never been higher than, I mean, at least in our cultural moment than they have been today. Look at verse 74 again. That we being delivered from the hand of our enemies might serve Him without fear in holiness and righteousness before Him all our days. Did you hear it? This is so important. I mean, I really, if you get one thing out of the sermon, get this. Fearlessness is meant to go hand in hand with holiness and righteousness. Did you know that? Did you know that fearlessness and righteousness are tied together? Because forgiven men and women who have a righteousness that is the righteousness of another, the righteousness of Christ, these are the fearless ones. Fearlessness and peace do not come through discarding what God has said, but by recognizing that you've rebelled against what He said and that Jesus Christ, the enfleshed Word of God, has come that you might have righteousness and holiness before Him. That you could stand clean and forgiven before your Father. This is part of why we confess sin every Sunday. So that we can hear again Jesus Christ speaking forgiveness from His Word, illuminated by His Holy Spirit, and rejoice that we can walk before Him without fear. Without fear. So finally, having gone through uh, this verse, He's coming to keep His promises, He's coming to save and change us. Finally, He's coming to bring light to darkness. The song concludes with some very curious language. And pardon me, I can already tell I'm going to keep you a little bit late this morning. Uh, but it's, it's good. It's, 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 for, it's, it's for good reason. We had to, uh, um, um, all, all that we're doing this morning is, is, is a blessing. The so, yeah. Oh, that was, a, that was a direction from one of your elders to keep going and going and going. Um, I am in the last point, though. The, the song concludes with some pretty curious language. If you look at verse 76, You child will be called the prophet of the Most High, you will go before the Lord to prepare His ways, to give knowledge of salvation to His people and the forgiveness of their sins because of the tender mercy of our God, whereby the sunrise shall visit us from on high to give light to those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death, to guide our feet into the way of peace. So the first part, obviously, is about John, right? John the Baptist, prophet of the Most High, preparing the way of the Lord, giving knowledge of salvation in the forgiveness of sins. Interestingly enough, this passage is sometimes used by our Lutheran brothers in, uh, at an ordination service. So they're speaking to this newly minted pastor. You will do the work of God's prophet. You'll prepare the way for the gospel. You'll, uh, 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 you, you'll do that by preaching salvation with the words, your sins are forgiven, which fits splendidly in with pastoral vocation. I do think it's a bit fast and loose with the text, uh, but it's a great way to understand the central work of pastoral ministry. Speaking prophetically, preparing the way by preaching the salvation of God through, this, through His forgiveness of sins. I could hardly hope for a better job description. But what I want you to notice is that after describing John's work, we, we see something that looks curious and odd at first, but is so glorious when we, when we see it with a bit more clarity. Zechariah's song places the tender mercy of God front and center. Right? This is what the coming of Christ was. 
The incarnation, God in flesh. The voice that spoke the universe into existence, making unintelligible baby noises in Mary's arms. God in flesh, so that we could be rescued from our sin, is our Father's own tender mercy. But did you catch how he describes it? It's pretty weird. He says that the mercy of our God is like the sunrise visiting us from on high to give light to people in the valley of the shadow of darkness. Surely you caught the Psalm 23 reference there. God will visit His people like a sunrise from on high. That doesn't make sense. Sunrises come up. Right? Sunrises go up. Not down. I'm no astronomer, but even I know that if you watch a sunrise, you are going to be watching something that is, well, rising. (laughs) Sunrises go up, sundowns go down. But Zechariah says that the ministry and work of the Messiah will be a sunrise that comes down. If you'll pardon the English play on words, the sunrise comes down so that one day the sun might rise again. The sunrise comes down because it's the move from darkness to light, but it's light coming down to us. Light and life to all He brings, risen with healing in His wings, mild He lays His glory by, born that men no more may die, born to raise the sons of earth, born to give them second birth. This is the tender mercy of our God who comes to those who dwell in darkness. That bit at the end, by the way, is a wonderful prayer to pray for those you know and love who are far from God, far from His gospel, far from His people, the church, far from faith. I pray it for my little sister who one day, who knows, might listen to this sermon and know that God has made those words part of her story. I pray, Lord, she sits in darkness. Grant that the light of your sunrise would visit her from on high, that she'd be brought out of the valley of the shadow and into the path of peace. The whole tone and tenor of Zechariah's song is one of expectant joy, the central feature, if you like, of the Advent season. There's a lot of modern religion and even modern irreligion that is overrun with a sense of pessimistic despair. Oh, things have never been this bad in history. Oh, yes, they absolutely have, and much worse. Things are really bad right now. What's the point of hoping? I imagine you are glad that your father did not take that attitude with you. If the sunrise can reach down, then we can hope in this and in every age that our God is at work, that He means to deliver His people, that He means to vindicate His own name, and that His plans for such glorious and triumphant vindication of His own name are usually more spectacular than we yet have the faith to believe. And so, trusting with expectant joy, we will pray, we will work, and in a moment we will sing. In the name of Jesus, amen. Our Father, we thank you for the story of your servant Zechariah and Elizabeth, John who prepared the way for Jesus our Savior. We ask that you would enliven our songs with joy and hope. 
And that as we sing to you, back to you as it were, which you've given to us, grant that our hearts would indeed be lifted up and strengthened for the good work ahead. In Jesus' name, amen.